you know, take a small chunk of the of this text, starting with verse 16 through 17. I'm only going to fo- focus on uh, two verses. I mean, I'm sorry, 16 through 27. I'm only going to focus on two verses here, but somehow it ended up being eight pages. So let's get started. <laughs> eight printed pages. <laughs> At this pace, we will be finished the book of James. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. J- January of 2020. <laughs> Definitely won't be 2021. <laughs> James, chapter 1. We're moving forward, remember we have broken up James into three sections. The first section was verses uh, 2 through 8, and we discussed how to handle trials. Then we broke it, uh, the second section was verses 12 through 15, and we titled that, How to Handle Temptation. And so today we will begin the third part, which is verses 16 through 27. And this whole title for this section is going to be How to Handle Self-Deception. How to Handle Self-Deception. This is going to be probably uh, the most difficult part. This is the application part. (laughs) All right. But stay with me. Is everyone there? James chapter 1. I'm going to start reading at verse 16 and read down to verse 27. It reads, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless." Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. (coughs) Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for uh, this opportunity to come before you and to hear your word and to read your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, knowledge, and understanding regarding you and regarding your word today. Help us not only to hear your word, but help us to have a heart to be doers of your word. As we look at this part, uh, this third part of chapter one, 
that we're calling How to Handle Self-Deception. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to apply all that we have read in the previous sections of chapter one. Help us to see how these things apply to our lives. Help us to examine our own hearts and lives before you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us um, to be consistent, to be people of faith and people who are able to not uh, just be hearers, but also those who are doers. We thank you now for all these blessings in Jesus name. Amen. Up until this point, James has been addressing the topic of parasmas, right? Remember, we said that parasmas means trials, temptation, adversity. It can also mean solicitation to sin. And James has been addressing this topic um, up to this point in James chapter one. He is discussing the role and goal of our trials and adversities in the Christian life. He begins by stating that Christians need to see adversity as a joyous occasion designed to produce endurance in our lives. We saw that in verses two and three. He then addresses how adversity can become an opportunity to sin because of our lack of endurance and our own desires. Right. Remember, um, he says, um, who have, you know, the person that endures temptation, that person will receive the crown of life. And then he goes on to talk about God does not tempt us. We are tempted by our own desires and led away. Right now we are turning to this last section in chapter one, where I believe that James is trying to warn us of a subtle danger to which every Christian can fall prey during times of adversity. This subtle danger is self-deception. As I've often said, from our standpoint, reality is not about facts. It is about our interpretation of the facts. We do not always readily perceive, understand, or accept the truth. It is impossible for each of us to hold beliefs. I'm sorry, it is possible for us to hold beliefs in our minds that don't always correspond to the truth. And the ultimate outcome is we in our lives, as the Greek word suggests, we'll see in a, in a minute, we start to wander. Okay. That's what the word dece- um, deceive here means. It means to be deceived. It means to wander or to be led astray. So as I said, We are not always basing reality off of facts, but our perception of the facts. And if we perceive the facts wrong, it can possibly cause us to wander or go astray from God. Now, James doesn't want us to be deceived. He doesn't want us to wander and he does not want us to be led away, led astray. So he pins this last section as a corrective lens for wrong viewpoints we as Christians tend to adopt in times of adversity. James starts this passage with a defense on the goodness of God. Listen to what he says in verses, bless you, 16 through 18. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift And every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation 
or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creation. Now, the question is, why does John, um, James begin a section on self-deception with a defense about the goodness of God? I mean, it, it seems as though if he was to address self-deception, he would address issues within us, right? Um, but instead, he begins by talking about the goodness of God. And I believe that we find the answer to this by looking um, up in the previous sections, right, where John has been dropping hints all along. In verse 5, James addresses God's generosity, right? In verse 5, he says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. He says that if you need wisdom, you can ask God, and God is a generous God. He is good. He will give to you liberally, right, without limit and without reproach, okay, addressing the goodness of God. In verse 13, James <coughs> tells us that God's nature precludes him from desiring sin, and therefore he does not tempt us to sin. Verse 13 reads, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be good, um, cannot be, mm, that was a mistake right there. God cannot be tempted by evil. <laughs> That's what happened when you're reading the Bible and your notes at the same time. Okay. <laughs> he says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. John James is dropping these clues along the way about God's goodness. And so he picks up in verse 16, 17, and 18, defending God's goodness. In my opinion, <clears throat> James begins here because... In the midst of trials, testings, and adversities, if we're honest, all of us are tempted to doubt whether or not God is good. In the middle of our tempt, um, uh, temptations, our trials, and adversities, we are tempted to wonder if God has our best interest at heart. So James begins here to settle uh, this for us moving forward before he addresses self-deception, right? He settles the question for us to let us know that God is good, that God is loving, and that God always has our best interest at heart. Now, this is not new. This is not something that <coughs> that is... Uh, uh, new to our generation, right? This is something that began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. I want you to really quickly turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. 
This is the same question that Adam and Eve had to ponder in the Garden of Eden. Is God good? Genesis chapter 3. Is everyone there? I'll start at verse 1, and we will see that this is exactly what Satan wanted to trip them up on. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Listen to what the serpent says. Then the serpent said to the woman, verse 4, You will not surely die. God says, if you eat of this tree, you are going to die. The serpent says, God is lying to you. God is not good. He's lying to you, verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is lying to you. He's lying to you because he wants to have an advantage over you. He doesn't want you to be on his level. God is not good. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, according to Genesis chapter 3, Satan was able to successfully get Adam and Eve to wander away from God by convincing them that God was not good. You see that? He was able to convince them that God was lying to them in order to maintain a level of superiority and control over them. And but once their belief in the goodness of God was removed, it was only a small step for them to wander away from God. That is because our belief in God is like a bodyguard for our faith. When that bodyguard, that belief in God, is taken away, our faith is left vulnerable to doubt. And when we begin to doubt God's goodness, when we begin to doubt, we lose faith, right? We're then more likely to wander away from God than to stay near to him. As the author of the book of Hebrews states in Hebrews eleven six, he who comes to God must believe what? That he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. See, it's not just enough to know that God exists. 
in order for us to come to God, to draw near to him, not to wander away from him, we have to know that he exists, that he is, and we need to know that he is good. He is someone who will reward those who come to him. Faith in the existence of God and the goodness of God is a prerequisite for coming to God. If either of these are missing, knowledge of his existence or knowledge of his goodness, we will eventually wander away from God. This is why James spends so much time in the beginning of this section on self-deception addressing the goodness of God. Because he knows that if we falter in our understanding of God's goodness, we will falter in our faith. So, is God good? Does God have our best interest at heart? These are questions of faith with, with which we all wrestle in times of testing. In verse 17, James assures us that God is indeed good. Listen to what he says in verse 17. Back to James chapter 1, verse 17. He says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Like verse 13 James is addressing for us the nature and the character of God. His argument is that God is good because he only gives good gifts that do not vary in their goodness or in their quality. Okay. Now, the phrase here that John, that, why do I keep saying John? I don't know why I keep saying John. <laughs> The phrase here, every good gift and every perfect gift, it literally means two things. It is referring to God's act of giving, and it is referring to the gift that is giving. It refers to the act of giving, right? The fact that God does give us something, and it also refers to the gift that God gives itself. James means to say that God's act of giving is good and the gift that he gives is good. Now, why is that important? It's important because we have to remember what is the context of this entire chapter. Tests, trials, and adversities, right? Okay, so this whole chapter is about tests, trials, and adversity. James then says that Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So in the context, right, the good gift and the perfect gift is connected to tests, trials, and adversities. But do we perceive it that way? <laughs> okay. God's act of giving and the gift given need also be seen in this context. 
God is good because he sees that we lack endurance. Remember from verse 2. He sees that we lack steadfastness. He sees that we're wishy-washy, that we're all over the place, like he says in the beginning, right? Like a wave that is tossed about on the sea. He sees that in us, and he does not want us to stay like that. So he acts. He does something. And because he does something, he proves that he is good. Because any father seeing their child in need is going to act because that father loves them, because that father is good. If that father does not act, if you see your child running out in the traffic, you're like, ah, they'd be all right. <laughs> right? You might not be good. <laughs> okay? But any loving father seeing their child run out in the traffic is going, to, is going to try to stop them, try to run after them, right? God acts because he is good. And God is also good because in acting, he gives us a good gift. In the context, he gives us adversity, right, in order to produce that endurance, The question for us becomes, do we trust that our testings, trials, and adversities are good gifts from a good father? Now, remember, I said that reality is not really based on facts. I mean, it is. But for us, you know, we have to filter everything through our minds, our viewpoint, our worldview. Okay. So sometimes we have the facts but those facts, once they are filtered through our worldview, right, we don't always see things correctly. God will send us adversity in order to produce patience and endurance and steadfast, uh, steadfastness in us, right? But if we don't perceive it as good, right, we won't let, as it says in verse um, uh, 3 and 4, we won't let patience have its perfect work. Even adversity is a good gift from a good father. But if we don't see it that way, we will ultimately be self-deceived and led astray. Does everyone see that? James is laboring for each of his readers, including us, to see that trials are a good gift from above. That is, they are designed in heaven. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. They are designed in heaven, right? And they come down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now, James here is uh, relying on uh, a Hebrew designation for God, right? Uh, this phrase, Father of Lights, was a, was a well-known uh, name for God, right? It points to God as creator, specifically the creator of the sun, moon, and stars, right? The heavenly lights. James is saying 
that God is the creator of the sun, moon, and stars, but God is not like the things that he has created. Now, pay attention to what, what John is saying here. <coughs> James is saying here. Y'all know what I mean. <laughs> James is telling us that the sun, moon, and stars are good gifts from God, right? But God is not like these gifts. The phrase variation and shadow of turning, right? It has somewhat of a, um, the, it has in, 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 in the original text, the, this idea of things that rotate on an axis or rotate or revolve around the sun. Okay. The earth rotates on an axis, correct? Okay. The earth revolves around the sun. The moon revolves around the earth. And because of these rotations and revolutions, right? We experience varying degrees of light and warmth from the sun. Okay. That's how we get our day and night cycle, right? The sun is always shining, but because the earth is rotating on its axis, sometimes it's day here and night on the other side of the planet, and sometimes it's night here and day on the other side of the planet. Sometimes the, the, the moon can travel in between the earth and the sun and create an eclipse. Okay. So even though the sun is always shining, right, because of this, um, these revolutions and rotations, sometimes we don't experience the warmth of the sun, right, winter versus summer, right, day versus night. We experience it in variations. James says that God is not like that. There is no variation with God. There are no shadows created by, by the sun beaming and something standing in the way, and so there's a shadow here where the sunlight can't reach. God is not like his creation. God is, James is telling us, he is good, he is always good, and his, his goodness always shines forth, and nothing will ever come between us that will cause us to stand in a shadow of God's goodness. His goodness shines forth consistently in every direction. We do not experience variations or various degrees of his goodness, nor can anything stand between us and our heavenly father, putting us in a shadow that his goodness cannot touch. God is good. God is completely good and God is consistently good. He is the same God. Catch this. He is the same good God in times of trials that he is in times of blessings because trials are his blessings. Trials are his blessings. Trials, adversity, and testings 
are the way that God produces his character in our lives. So adversity is one of God's blessings. Sometimes we feel that God is great. God is blessing me. I got money in the bank. Shorty, what you think? Okay. All right. We, We think that we have everything going for us. Everything is smooth. There's no problems in life. Everything is great. God is blessing me. And then trials and adversity comes. And we wonder, well, what, what did I do? Why, why is God not blessing me anymore? Well, what is the pro- God, what do I have to do to get back into your favor? <laughs> and the truth is that just because we are experiencing trials or adversity, it does not mean that we are outside of God's favor. This means that God has given us a different type of blessing so that he can produce something better in our lives. Even in times of adversity, even in times of pain and suffering, God is good. Since belief in God's goodness is essential to our protection from self-deception, James seeks to drive home the point with one more illustration. In verse 18, he states, Of his own will, he brought forth, brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Now, James is addressing that God is good in verse 17. He says he continues to give us good gifts, um, and those good gifts include adversity, right? But now, James is turning to the greatest gift that God has given us, okay? He says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, I want you to look at verse 15, because again, James keeps using the same words, right? Variations of the same word over and over again. Verse 15 says, Then when desire has conceived, it what? Gives birth to sin. Okay? It gives birth to sin. This same word, right, gives birth to, is the same word, okay, That is used in verse 18 when James says that God brought us forth. He birthed us. I think James is trying to tell us if we want to know if God is good and has our best interest at heart, we need to look no further than our salvation or more specifically our new birth. This is what we call the doctrine of regeneration. Okay. I believe James' argument can be summed up like this. We never have to doubt God's goodness toward us because when we were his enemies and dead in sin of his own free will, he chose to give us eternal life through a spiritual new birth produced by the word. Now, what I want us to do is listen to what the Bible says about us before our salvation in Christ. Okay. 
I don't. I, I have a couple passages of scriptures. I'm not going to have you turn to these. I'll have you turn to the, um, to the next set of passages. But think about what James is trying to tell us. Okay, we often doubt in times of adversity whether God really is good, right? Whether He is is blessing us because He loves us, right? And yet, James is saying that we know that God is good because he saved us. He gave us the new birth. Now, sometimes, we talked about this, you know, yesterday in class, we've discussed this, um, we're generally having a, um, a tough time with this. And so I got a, some verses up for us to look at, right, when we talk about uh, salvation. This is who we were before Christ. Just listen to these passages of Scripture. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great. You were wicked. Okay. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You were wicked before Christ found you. And all of the thoughts of your hearts were evil. Okay. I know we don't see ourselves that way, but this is how God sees us. Okay. Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Right? Sinner from conception. Psalm 58, verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. <laughs> so immediately the time you, you learn how to talk, you became a liar. <laughs> okay. right. who, who took them cookies? I don't know. All right. It's just, it's just natural. Nobody taught you how to do it. It's just a basic instinct, right? <laughs> it's a basic instinct. All right, now what do I got to do to get out of this? I'll just tell a lie, okay? It's just natural. Isaiah 64, verse 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Then may you also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Okay. So if, if, if a brown-skinned person can change their skin color, if a leopard can change its spots, then you can do good. <laughs> okay? Hey, I didn't write it. I just read it. Okay. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You don't even know how bad your own heart is. John chapter 6, verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. John 6, 65. And he said, therefore I say unto you, no man can come unto me except it were given unto him by my father. You don't even have the freedom to choose me. 
I know you got free will. You can't choose me unless my father draws you first. Romans 3, 10 through 11, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.12, they are all gone out of the way. They are together becoming, um, have become unprofitable. There is none that do, does good, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for all sinned. Romans 7, 18, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will, to exercise my free will, is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I do not find. Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. You are rebellious against God. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, but the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. You think the things of God are foolish. The word here is where we get our English word moron. When someone talks to you about God, you think you're an idiot. Okay. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, 3. And you hath he made alive who were dead, you were dead in trespasses and sins before Christ found you, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Whatever your flesh wanted, you did it. Whatever you could come up in your mind, you did it. And were by nature children of wrath, just like the others. You were fleshly. You were carnal. You did any sin your flesh wanted. And the wrath of God was on you. Last verse, Ephesians 4, 18. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the blindness of their hearts. Your understanding is darkened, right? Not really smart spiritually speaking, right? You're alienated from God's life, ignorant and blind. And even when we were in that condition, hating God, his enemy, thinking the things of God were foolish, wanting to go our own way, hard-hearted, even when we were in that condition, God pursued us. He chased us down until we fell in love with him. You all remember the, the example that I gave when we uh, started this, uh, the introduction, right? What is faith? And uh, we, I talked about how um, a, a man can see a woman and this woman has, she has no interest in this man at all, right? But he keeps pursuing her, right? He's complimenting her. He continues to give her flowers, give her gifts. And, and over time, right, she keeps pushing away. Get away. I don't want you, right? But, but, but over time, right, like Steve Urkel with Laura, I'm weighing you down, okay? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? You, 
he, you just, he just keeps on pursuing her until her heart changes and she begins to love him. That's what God did with us. We did not love him. We did not want him. But he kept on pursuing us until he changed our hearts so that we could love him. So if you doubt that God is good because you go through trials and adversity, just think about what he did for you in order to save you. The cross should clear up any doubt in our minds that God is good. We should know because of the cross that God always has our best interest at heart. Before Christ saved us, we were God's enemies and there was nothing in us that would cause us to be loved by him. And yet, James says, he freely chose to give us new life anyway. He birthed us by the word of truth. And notice, okay, I wanted to harp on this since um, we talked about this in class yesterday. And, uh, <laughs> and we have been generally wrestling with this. Notice, according to James' analogy, this new birth is not based on anything we have done. Now, I know that it's in the news that uh, within the last week or two that there's a guy who was suing his parents because <laughs> they didn't get his permission to, uh, to bring him here, to birth him. And so he wants the parents to, he did, they didn't get permission <laughs> to give him life. And so he wants them to pay his bills for the, <laughs> for the rest of his life. No, it's real. Oh, you can Google it. It's a real lawsuit. Right. They, did, they didn't get his permission to conceive him and bring him into the world, and so they owe him taking care of him for the rest of his life. Okay. I'm interested in seeing how that lawsuit comes through because I might be filing a lawsuit of my own. <laughs> I'm tired of paying bills. <laughs> Look. My my room is still empty. <laughs> but listen to what James is saying, right? Just like our parents don't ask for our opinion to conceive and birth us, <laughs> just like it has nothing to do with us, we really ain't even there. Okay. <laughs> well, at the end, we are. No, just saying. <laughs> but just like we don't get a say-so in being born from our parents, this is an act of God that has nothing to do with us. He brought us forth. He birthed us of his own free will. By the word of truth. Listen to what, I want you to turn to these passages of scripture. I want us to see this, that 
salvation from start to finish is a work of God. All we do is say, yes, Lord. (laughs) We respond to him. Salvation is the work of God. Again, this is the doctrine of regeneration. I'm not going to go through all that the Bible says about regeneration, but a couple passages of Scripture I want us to look at uh, just quickly. We'll read through them so that we can see what the Bible says here about regeneration. This is a work of God. Yes, you exercise faith to open your hand and accept the gift. But the only reason you did that was because God worked it in your heart in the first place. Listen to what we see. Go to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. This passage is talking about the new covenant. Right. Remember, Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, he took bread right, and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. What was he referring to? He's referring to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 31, it says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for because I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. God is the one who initiates the covenant. God is the one who puts his laws in our hearts and minds. God is the one who forgives our sins and no longer remembers our iniquity. It is God's work, not ours. Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. Just two books over from Jeremiah. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19 and 20. Ezekiel says, I'm, I'm God saying through Ezekiel, then I will, I will give them, what? One heart, and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh. You have hard hearts. You can't do anything to change your hard heart. So what does God do? God puts a new spirit in us. He gives us a new heart by taking the old heart and giving us a heart that is tender and soft towards him. Right. I will put a new spirit in them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that. Notice what he says. He is, he is going to give us a new spirit, take our hard heart, gives us a new heart, 
And because he does that, right, we will then be able to walk in his statutes and keep my judgments and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Okay? So, again, yes, we're talking about justification. We're talking about the moment of salvation. But remember, as we said last, um, yesterday in class, that sanctification, us growing in our walk with God, continuing to walk with God, is also a gift. You cannot do it if God doesn't give you the heart that you need. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Verse 22. Ezekiel 36, 22. Reads, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nation and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God. When I have hallowed in you, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you to all um, out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. God does the work, He gives you a new heart, He gives you a new spirit, and because He does that, you can respond by saying yes and walking in his ways. You know, notice this is the passage, this is Ezekiel 36, 22, 22 through 27, is the passage behind John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he says that you must be born of water and the spirit. Okay, this is what Jesus is talking about. When God says, I will sprinkle you with clean water, right, and you shall be clean, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, okay? This is all a reference to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and how the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us when, once the Holy Spirit gives us this new birth. Ezekiel 37, last passage, Ezekiel 37. Reads, the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley. And it was full of bones. We all know this passage of scripture, (laughs) the valley of dry bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were 
very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones. Okay, remember, James says, He brought us forth, he birthed us by the word of truth. Okay, and we'll see that, um, I'm soon we'll see that that is not just talking about reading scripture, it's talking about preaching. Okay, the word that we hear um, um, in, in preaching. Again, he says to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. He brings us forth by the word of truth. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to come into you and you shall live. See, this is the same thing God says of us spiritually. You were dead in sin. Ephesians 2, 1. When you were dead in sin, he made you alive. When you were dead, he breathed his life into you and said, live. And so you did. That's regeneration. That's not your free will choosing or rejecting God. That is a sovereign God who has chosen you before the foundation of the world, calling you just like Jesus called Lazarus in the tomb. Lazarus was not just, wait, I wonder when Jesus is going to call me. <laughs> Lazarus was dead. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And life entered a dead body and he came to life, not because of his free will, but because a sovereign God called him to life. And because God calls us, we will choose to accept. <laughs> if you are ever tempted to doubt the goodness of God in your life, Regardless of what you're going through, you have to think back to when you were a sinner, when you were unsaved, and think about all the things that God did to draw you to himself and how you rejected him, you spurned him, you took his gifts and used them against him, and yet he still pursued you until he won you to himself. That will convince you that God is good and that God has your best interest at heart. James, from this point on, he goes on to address the application. We'll come back next week and look at that. Because of this, he says, So then, beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, Swift to hear, slow to speak, uh, slow to anger. <laughs> okay. We'll come back to looking at these things next week because James is addressing the first thing that leads us astray, right, that, that causes our self-deception. 
not recognizing the goodness of God. Now he comes and begins to address specific things in us, right? The first thing is we feel justified when we're angry about something. And so instead of being swift to hear and slow to speak, we, we are slow to speak and swift to speak. <laughs> so we will come back next week. We'll pick up uh, in uh, verse 19, and James will help us to see that the way to address self-deception is to make sure that we are, we are actively applying everything that we are hearing. Father, we thank you today for allowing us again to come into your, uh, into your house, this church. And we thank you that James spent so much time in chapter 1 of his epistle addressing your goodness. I pray, God, that you would help us to see in the times of doubt, in the times of pain, that you are good, you are completely good, and you are consistently good. Help us in the times when we are hurting and going through trials not to doubt your goodness because that will cause our faith to falter and we will be more easily led astray. Help us to know that the fact that you pursued us when we were your enemies, that proves that you're good, that proves that you love us, that proves that you have our best interest at heart. And as Paul says, if you saved us when we were your enemies, how much more will you give, freely give us all things now that we are your sons and daughters. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to keep these things in the forefront of our minds because our faith is tested every single day. Every day, Lord, we experience things that cause us to think that your goodness comes in waves or in variations so that we can be stuck in a shadow where your goodness cannot touch. But help us to see that you are the father of lights and with you there is no variation or shadow of turning. That even in our pain you are good because you are working all things for our good because you love us. We thank you now asking that you would help us to keep these things in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.